today we start this Advent series. And so welcome. Uh, all of us have heard the word Advent before. Some of you might not remember or have never heard what Advent means. It comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means coming or arrival. And so Advent is to celebrate the coming or the arrival of Jesus. The main idea behind Advent is for us to reflect and anticipate and to celebrate the coming of Jesus. There's a first Advent, which has already occurred, and there's a second Advent, which will occur. And to celebrate and reflect is also to celebrate and reflect on the second Advent as well, not just the first Advent, the coming, the arrival of Jesus Christ, who left the comfort, the majesty, the perfection of heaven to come down into our brokenness. Born of a Virgin Mary, Jesus lived a perfectly obedient life. He died a criminal's death so that we would have access to a perfectly holy God. We hear that a lot, maybe, but I really want that to sink in. As you know, Christmas or Advent, the season can get a little bit crazy. Shopping, travel plans, anticipating family gatherings, those can be a little bit awkward, right? Because probably most of us have the weird relatives that makes it awkward to be around. And maybe some of you are that weird relative that gets together with family from time to time. It can all be quite stressful. So with that in mind, we want to serve you in two ways this Advent season. The first way was mentioned in the announcements. It's a resource that we have provided uh, either in hard copy or, um, or in uh, PDF form. And we actually ran out of the hard copies at the first service. And so if you would like a hard copy, you can write down on one of the connection cards your name and like resource or advent and we'll make some more uh, this week and have them available next week. You could also download a PDF copy of the resource here. Uh, and so we also have some packets of uh, invitation cards that are out there at the resource table. And this is the idea that people can be lonely during the holidays, people can be stressed out, and so we would like to invite you to invite friends and family, co-workers to come and join us uh, for the Advent season. And especially that Advent uh, study guide and resource, it's, it's going to help you to reflect at home on the meaning of Advent. And I think parents will particularly find this helpful. There's resources in there and, and projects that you can do with your kids. And there's also a section which unpacks some of the biblical connections to many of the Christmas traditions. Like why is Christmas celebrated on December 25th? We know that Jesus was not born on December 25th, so why was it moved there? There's actually a reason for that. What about the Advent wreath? What's the biblical significance of that? What about the Christmas candle? What about Christmas bells? What about Christmas carols and carolers? What about gift giving? Those all have biblical significance. Even the candy cane 
has biblical significance. Mostly the candy cane is made in the shape of a staff, and it's red and it's white for a reason. So some of those resources are in that, that resource guide there. And the second way we'd like to serve you this month is with our, with our Sunday services. They're designed for you to come out from under the stress, the anxiety of the season, the frenzied cultural pace that we have, and take an hour uh, to worship and to be together and to anticipate the coming of Jesus. My prayer for our church, and this is my prayer for me too, is that I've said this before, but I have more gospel in my head than I do in my heart. And as I anticipate and celebrate, my prayer is for us, for you and for me, that that which we have in our heads, some of the principles and biblical um, perspectives would make its way those 18 inches from our head to our heart. And so it's a great time to reflect on that and to see if we can't move some of that down into our hearts. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to unwrap the gospel fruits of peace and joy and hope and love through the retelling of the Christmas narrative. And I just, just a reminder, on December 29th, we're just going to have one gathering at 9.30. And so today we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 7 through 15. It's on page 851 in the Bibles at your seats there. And if you don't have a Bible, we'd like to make that our gift to you. If you want a really nice Bible, though, you can check out The Lost and Found. There's a couple of really nice ones in there. And there's a few sweaters, too, uh, for those of you that were here. That. Okay. So Luke chapter 2 is by far the most widely known chapter in the Bible because it tells the Christmas story. But as you probably know, John 3.16 is the most widely known verse. So the essence of the Christmas narrative, as I mentioned, is that the creator of the universe, the eternal God, put on humanity and entered into our human condition as a baby. The theological term, you've probably heard this word before, is incarnation. The word carn, you've probably had carne asada or carnitas, and that the word carn means flesh. So incarnation means in flesh or became flesh, the incarnation. I found this in my notes, and I don't know who said this, so it was probably me, but it, but it says, God hid his glory in the weakness of skin. God hid his glory in the weakness of skin. And then I love uh, Eugene Peterson's, the message. I'm not crazy about the whole uh, paraphrase, the message, but when it's good, it's really good. And I particularly like John 1.14. And it says, the word of God, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. I just think that's awesome. The word, God, became flesh and he moved right into your neighborhood. So with that said, I invite you to follow along with your Bible, uh, whether it's on your device or in your hands there, uh, a hard copy. But I'm going to re read Luke 2, 7 through 15. We're going to focus in today on verse 14, so pay attention to that. So starting in verse 7, And Mary gave birth to her firstborn son, 
and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. You think? And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto us is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and laying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, maybe even singing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Pray with me. Maybe we'll take a deep breath We'll relax. We'll try and be fully present. Lord, we do thank you for your presence amongst us. And I pray that the things that we have in our head, things about you, about your word, the longings that each of us carry, I pray that over this Advent season, maybe even a little bit today, that you would move those things from our head down into our heart. Lord, we, we long to know you better. Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for this season where we can anticipate and celebrate what you have done. I pray that that reality becomes more and more and more apparent to us as the month moves forward. We commit this time to you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as I mentioned, we're seeking to unwrap Christmas peace We'll take a close look at verse 14, and it says, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. We see that from this angelic chorus that this good news from verse 10 has two outcomes according to this verse, at least two. One is glory to God in the highest. And then two, on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, with whom is he pleased? God is pleased with the hearts who have been awakened to him. So that's a collective announcement of all those past, present, and future whose hearts have been awakened to him. So what does this mean to us in this complicated 21st century in which we live, where peace and peacefulness is so hard to come by? The most straightforward way to understand, I think, this verse is to see that when we give glory to God, God gives peace to us. Think of it this way. When glory goes up, peace comes down. It's a little bit like uh, Chance the Rapper in his song, Blessings. And he sings, when the praises go up, the blessings come down. 
If you haven't heard of Chance the Rapper, you need to go home and look him up on Spotify. It's a worthy listen. To unpack it a little bit more, I'd like to ask two questions of the text today that will help us to deal with the anxiety that comes with this season and our lives in these kind of uncertain times that we live in. Here's the two questions. What is the glory of God in the highest? What is that? We, that, we hear that term a lot, glory, but what is glory? We're going to try and discover that today. And then secondly, what does peace on earth look like? Those are the two questions that we want to ask of the text today. So we're going to go back and look at those one at a time. So number one, what is the glory of God in the highest? The Greek word for glory is doxa. It's the same word we get our word doxology from. And that doxology, glory to God in the highest, would seem to have been one of the most familiar and popular doxologies for the Jewish people. It reappears 33 years later with Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, what we know as Palm Sunday. And we see the same phrase recorded in Matthew 21 and Luke 19. And the idea implied in the words, in the highest, in the Greek it's, it's plural, means that praise reverberates through the very highest regions of the universe as well as throughout heaven. You can think of it as an echo. The glory of God echoes through the universe. The, the, the glory of God echoes through heaven, wherever that is. So what is the glory of God? That's a really hard word to define or even describe. When we define it, try to define it in human terms, it can be really difficult. When we try and use words to describe God's glory, we end up reducing sometimes the, the word glory to some kind of human emotion or feeling. And it's so much more than that. Here's a description that I pieced together from a book entitled, A Heart for God's Glory. We'll put it up here, uh, I think, it's coming. I'll start it out, maybe it'll get up there. Here's a description of the glory of God, boom. The beauty and the excellence of God's manifold perfection. The magnificence and purity of God's holiness. The overflowing fullness of God's infinite goodness. The perfect harmony of all that God's attributes gathered into one infinitely beautiful, personal, and intimate being. That doesn't even begin to do the word justice. But take a deep breath and let's look at this. I just want to linger here and let this touch our hearts, our souls. The beauty and excellence of God's manifold perfection. The magnificence and purity of God's holiness. The overflowing fullness of God's infinite goodness without end. The perfect harmony of all God's attributes gathered into one infinitely beautiful, personal, and intimate being. That just scratches the surface 
of this thing called glory. The scriptures teach us that all the works of God have as their ultimate goal the display of God's glory. Now, I want to try and personalize this glory for you and for me. The literal meaning of the Hebrew word for glory is weight. Glory is a weight. And here's the implication, implication when you and I encounter the glory of God. Picture a pool of water. That's you and me. Now, picture a large rock. That would be God. Picture this pool of water and this rock. When you drop the rock into the pool of water, the rock will disrupt and displace the water. It'll send ripples throughout the pool because the rock has more glory than the water, right? When God's glory splashes into our lives, everything gets disrupted and displaced by God's glory. It ripples through our lives. And in a few moments, our view of God, our view of ourself, and even our view of the future changes, completely changes. This is what happened to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 when he encountered God in the temple. He was just going to church one day. He'd probably been going 100 times, 200 times, 300 times. He went to the temple. But one day he walked in and he encountered God. And the glory of God changed him, changed his life. It changed his destiny, his encounter with God. When we encounter the weight of God's glory, it disrupts everything in our lives. Pastor and theologian Tim Keller from down in New York, he talks about it this way. He says, there's a difference between God as a concept and God as a reality. Think about that for a moment. A lot of us have a concept of God. We've grown up with a concept of God. But has God become a reality in your life? Have you experienced the passion and the presence of God in your life? Every human being on the planet longs for that. I'm thinking of Augustine's prayer to God. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And he's speaking to every person on the planet. It's not just wannabe Christians or Christians. Every heart on the planet is restless until it finds its rest in God. And that's what I want for us this Advent season. If God has just been a concept, I'm glad that he has, but I want for you, for God to be more than a concept. I want God to be a reality. I want you, uh, I want for me to experience the presence and the passion of God in our lives. That's why we've put together these resources. That's why we're focusing on this for the Advent season. When Isaiah walked into the temple and encountered God, it's Isaiah 6.1 and following, it wasn't as if he didn't believe in God until that day, 
But it was that day when God moved from being a concept in his life to becoming a reality in his life. And that begs the question, has God moved from being a concept to being a reality in your life? I want more for me, I'm not just talking to you. So how do we glorify God? We glorify God through grateful, heartfelt worship and adoration for the gift of our salvation and through actively seeking to find our greatest comfort, our greatest joy, our greatest delight in Him instead of other things. We turn to other things so quickly. I don't know about you, but I do. All sin, it's been said, is idolatry. Because in that moment, we're choosing to worship something or someone other than God. And, and we want to find the byproduct of finding our joy, our comfort, and delight primarily in God is that we begin to experience a growing freedom from selfishness. We are moved to seek the good of other people and to respond in grateful responsive obedience to God. I've said this before, but I want to make sure that we, we get this. Obedience is not the goal of the Christian life. It's the fruit of the Christian life. Some of us grew up in a, in a church context where obedience was the goal. And I would call that legalism. I would suggest to you that if you still think or still have that feeling, that leftover feeling that obedience is the goal, that you have not rightly understood the gospel. Because the goal of the Christian life is worship. The goal of the Christian life is adoration. And the fruit of that worship, the fruit of that adoration is a heartfelt, responsive obedience to God. If we read the Bible with the expectation that it is primarily about us, we will tend to see the Bible as a rule book instructing us regarding what we must do in order to please or appease God. But if we read the Bible with the understanding that the Bible was written for us, but the Bible is primarily about God, we will begin to see in some new ways what God has done for us. And that elicits worship in our heart and in our soul. Uh, contemporary theologian, pastor, author, John Piper, wrote a book called Desiring God. It's a really worthy read. Here's a quote, it's probably one of the most famous of Piper's quotes. Here's what he said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Think about that. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. And again, that book, it comes from a book called Desiring God, and it's, it's, it's a worthy read. Number two, what does peace on earth look like? The most basic need of all mankind is peace with God. Again, call to mind that Augustine quote, our hearts are restless till they find their rest in God. This is foundational to all our pursuits of peace. That's why our government will never be able to provide that peace for us. Their best attempts is 
what the UN peacekeeping troops provide. They can keep peace for a while, but as we remember from our study in the Beatitudes, you and I are called to be peacemakers, not peacekeepers. And remember in our study of the Beatitudes, which just finished last week, there's, there's an emptying of us by God's grace and mercy, and then there's a filling of us that results in us becoming peacemakers in our world. If we don't pursue peace with God, first and foremost, all other attempts at peace will be superficial, will be temporary. As we move towards the definition of peace, let's ask, what is the opposite of peace? You could say war. For us in our everyday life, it's more like worry and anxiety. That's the opposite of peace and where we struggle. And some of us in the room struggle more with worry and anxiety than others. It's one of my struggles. I appear to be laid back, but I'm not really. There's a lot going on below the surface and there's anxiety. I'm still working on that. I'm still dealing with that. Our world system would define peace as the absence of conflict. But a biblical definition of peace is not the absence of conflict, but the absence of anxiety, the absence of dread, even in the midst of inevitable conflict. So the essence of the gospel is that Jesus came to give us peace in our conflicts, in our trials, not necessarily from our conflicts or from our trials. I would remind you that the writer of Hebrews said that Jesus learned obedience from the things that he suffered. We'd like to believe that he suffered so we wouldn't have to. But I think what Scripture says is that we are called to suffer too. And that's where God teaches. He will use our conflicts. He'll use our grief to grow us and strengthen us. Many Christians or churchgoers don't understand this, and some want God to deliver us from our conflicts, from our circumstances. And when God doesn't oblige, we can become disheartened. And, and probably some of us, if not many of us in the room, have gone through that. I know I have. Here's what John 16:33 says. Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me, in me, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. I hadn't planned on saying this, but those words, in me. One of the, the primary doctrines of the Christian faith is called union with Christ. And you'll remember if you've read the New Testament that Paul talks a lot about being in him in him, in him. And Jesus here says, in me. I don't know if I've shared this before, but let me tell you something about union with Christ. If you are a Christian and you are in him, all that is true of Jesus is now true of you. Those are, those are hard words to get our head and our heart around. If you're a Christian and you're in him, all that is true of Christ is now true of you. Those of us who have responded to the call of Christ and have placed our faith in him 
experience the first fruits of this peace, I hope, that he has offered us. And having tasted this, we anxiously anticipate the fullness of Christ's peace that we will see when we see him. And the whole history of redemption climaxing in the birth, the ministry, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus is God's strategy to bring about a just and lasting peace between us and God and between us and one another. That's in Ephesians 2, if you'd like to read more about that. Now, as we conclude and we move towards celebrating the Lord's Supper together, we want to continue to unwrap this Christmas peace by acknowledging first and foremost that God is glorified because this Christ child is born. And second, peace begins to spread everywhere this child is received. And I would add the words authentically received. These are the great purposes of the incarnational birth of Jesus Christ. My great desire for you, for us, this Christmas, is that we would relax, that we would take some time to relax, to engage, to consider, to enjoy this peace. I hope that you get to spend some time alone. I hope that God grants you the opportunity to reflect on him, to celebrate, to anticipate, to invite this presence that God could move from a concept to an experience in our lives. There's a global aspect of peace that lies in the future. Habakkuk 2.14 says, Habakkuk 2.14 says, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's where we're headed, folks. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that verse we often hear at Christmas time, Isaiah 9, verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. We spent a lot of time during the Beatitudes series talking about the kingdom of God. He established it in his first coming. He's going to consummate it in his second coming. That's, that's another way to say the kingdom. His kingdom and peace, there will be no end. And here's what I'd like to say to you. The, the government and peace or kingdom and peace are co-relative terms. In other words, you can't have one without the other. You can't have peace without good government, kingdom government. And when you have kingdom government, there is peace. So the key to our peace is keeping together with the angels what the angels kept together in Luke 2:14. God's glory and our peace. When we glorify God as individuals and collectively as a body, he rains his peace down on us.